Welcome to Future Proof, the marketing podcast from Kantar and Side Business School, University of Oxford. In each episode, we speak with marketing leaders and share insights to help brands and business leaders navigate the ever-changing marketing landscape and hopefully dispel some myths and misconceptions along the way. Hi, I'm Jane Osler. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. EVP of Global Thought Leadership at Kantar. So our guest today is Ed Vasey, Lord Vasey of Didcot. He has had an amazing career. He's a polymath, pretty much. He's been a UK MP. He's been a Minister of State for Culture. He's been a trustee. He's a non-exec director of various companies and now even a radio host on Times Radio. So welcome, Ed. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell us a bit about what you're doing now, Ed. What does your career consist of now? It's, it's in the broad realm of culture and business and digital, but tell us what you're doing. So I'm sort of a retired politician in the sense that I got booted upstairs to the House of Lords. So I was very lucky to get that role, which I started in September 2020. And that's kind of my, I describe the House of Lords as my sort of anchor tenant. I sort of base my life around the House of Lords and I carry on my interests, which are culture and technology, which I'd be passionate about obviously since I took on the role as the shadow minister and then the minister. And around that, I have a series of kind of not-for-profit interests and commercial interests. So on the not-for-profit side, uh, I'm lucky enough to be on the board of Tate, which is fantastic. It's brilliant to be a sort of poacher-turned-gamekeeper or gamekeeper-turned-poacher on that front. Uh, And then uh, on the profit side, I kind of advise a whole range of different kind of technology companies on their strategy. So it's a nice and busy mix of stuff. Great. So let's start with the sort of culture aspect, if if that's all right, because obviously culture and arts have evolved quite a lot since the pandemic. They had to make special preparations during the pandemic to be available and to continue to be relevant. What do you think is happening with culture and the arts now, particularly in time of you know recession and uh, cost of living crises? Well, I mean, I think the pandemic taught us that culture is, you know, at the heart of our society and our way of life. I mean, we relied on culture 
to get through the pandemic because we all watched endless uh, box sets. You know, I got through Breaking Bad and my family got through Gossip Girl. Uh, in effect, I could pretend that I was entirely responsible for people staying sane during the p- pandemic because I spent a lot of time as a minister getting rural broadband uh, out. And so we were based in Oxfordshire in a small village, but luckily we had broadband so we could watch all these box sets endlessly on television. That was very great. But obviously we all missed, you know, what culture does, which is to bring people together. We missed going to the theatre in a large crowd. We missed going to concerts. Uh, we missed going to exhibitions. Uh, we missed going to performances. And in fact, I would obviously include sport in that. We missed going to big sporting events as well. So all of the kind of things that bring us together, you realise, are basically based around culture. So that's point number one. If it didn't bring home to people how important culture is effectively to our sanity, I don't know what would. And secondly, obviously, cultural institutions themselves had to pivot. And uh, I can't remember the statistic, but I think the National Gallery went from doing absolutely nothing to having, you know, 500 online events during the pandemic in terms of lectures and videos and so on. So all of these kind of slightly static, uh, I'm sure I'm being deeply unfair to the National Gallery, for which I apologise, but all of these slightly static institutions learnt how to reach out to people online. And I think the end result of that is a sort of hybrid version of culture that we will see developing going forward, which is a recognition that if I can use some slightly crude terms, although probably not crude for your listeners, but crude to the arts establishment, is um, cultural institutions are effectively content platforms. And uh, if you go to the opera on one level, you go to an auditorium and you have this incredible live experience. But at the same time, that stage and those singers are producing content which can be monetized and distributed in different ways. It can be, uh, you know, NT Live is obviously a very good example. The National Theatre's Cinecast. Uh, You can go to a cinema and watch a live opera. You can watch it on a platform like Digital Theatre, for example. Uh, And potentially you can charge for that and make revenue. You're not going to obviously move the dial hugely, but it is better than nothing. And the other thing I found at Tate, for example, Tate's uh, membership really held up during the pandemic, you know, and that sounds amazingly counterintuitive. Why on earth would you stay as a member of a museum which you can't go and visit? But of course, it was about keeping in touch with Tate and your passion for contemporary art. And Tate membership is proving to be one of the best kind of revenue streams for Tate outside of kind of blockbuster exhibitions. And it's something I hope that we will build on because again it's about using technology and digital to create a community of people who share a common interest and to give them content that they wouldn't get you know you're not trying to recreate the museum online you're trying to just give them different forms of content through technology and you can reach a 14 year old who's passionate about contemporary art living in San Paolo Uh, who will never probably get the chance to visit Tate uh, or certainly wouldn't visit Tate for many, many years and would only visit once or twice at most. So Doug Gurr, who's head of the Natural History Museum, but used to run Amazon, is very good on all this. And he does describe the Natural History Museum as a content platform. And he points out that you have sort of three elements to a digital museum, if you like. That includes uh, taking, you know, for the sake of argument, a dinosaur bone and turning it into 10 different pieces of content, depending on what audience uh, you want to speak to. They have lots of uh, moving image content, which they haven't sort of categorized and and need to create more of. Uh, And they have the data of who visits the museum and who visits the website. And if if you crunch all that together, you've got this kind of amazing uh, opportunity. And if you think about it, if 150,000 people join your museum and pay you £100 a year to get content pretty soon you're talking in museum terms pretty significant revenue 
And once you've built the platform and the technology, it's pretty low cost. So there are these massive opportunities for culture, which can only be a good thing. It can only be, put forward a cliche, a, a complete win-win because you're reaching out to people who want your content and you're making money from it. Okay, so let's talk a bit more about the role of data and digital with experiences that you're talking about. We advise brands to be, you know, data-driven and human-centric, so always know what people are thinking and feeling because that's the only way that you can guide your brand's activity. But what is it about data that you think is interesting? And do you think the UK is set up? Do we have the ability to make the most of data that all these institutions are now producing? Data is a complex complex subject when it comes to the policy approach to data. I mean, we have obviously in Europe, the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, and this is regarded as the gold standard for data protection. And in fact, it's being copied all around the world. But a lot of people will tell you that it is completely top heavy and open to very poor interpretation. Somebody told me an anecdote the other day that even if you get given a business card at a German event, German way of interpreting the law is that you still have to ask the person permission to store their data once they've given you their business card. So it can be taken to kind of absurd levels. But at the end of the day, in a, I've always been... I do understand the concept that our data should be private and not abused, but I've also been pretty relaxed about this kind of dystopian view that, you know, you are the product. Because, you know, although I do find it slightly creepy that literally if I talk to my wife about a new sofa, I'll suddenly get sofa adverts on my Google search engine. So there need to be some limits. But I don't mind the fact that, by and large, the sites that I use learn a bit about me and give me to a certain extent some of the content I want to see and I think that therefore we are really in the foothills of using data properly and on a macro level with government for example I think the data bill that's coming through parliament is going to allow lots of different government departments to start sharing data and that can only be a sensible thing it can only be sensible for example to take health data mix it with education data mix it with geographical data and draw from mixing that data conclusions about certain parts of the country, lifestyles. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Impact on health and so on and so forth. And from that extrapolate some hopefully benign and very positive policy outcomes, which could really move the dial for people and make their lives better. Going down to the micro and back to how we were talking about culture, you know, Tate has just introduced a new ticketing system. It was a massive uh, IT project that, unlike uh, the Virgin Orbit satellite, was launched successfully with very few glitches. And it's going to move the dial for us in terms of our relationship with 
our audience because we will know that if you come to the Cezanne exhibition you bought a mug or you bought a print so we'll kind of know the kind of things you like to buy we'll get to know over time the exhibitions you come to at Tate we'll get to know a bit about maybe the stuff you look at on our website and we'll crunch that together to gain a picture of you where hopefully rather than it being a kind of sinister creepy surveillance of your habits of engagement with Tate you'll start to get more and more bespoke content from Tate that will hopefully give you a richer engagement. So data is so incredibly important. And obviously, there's other forms of data. There's the deep mind, artificial intelligence, crunching of data to produce incredible outcomes, both in terms of drug discovery, but also diagnostics, which could have a a major, major, major impact. So we really do need a much greater level of understanding of the benefits that using data well can bring to us in public policy terms. Do you think the UK is well equipped to deal with all of this? Do we have the right people? Do we have enough people who are experienced in understanding and interpreting data to make the most of this opportunity that you suggest? I think we do in many ways, yes. I mean, I think that the UK remains uh, still the preeminent tech friendly country in Europe. And we've always been a country which has been Uh, had a sort of consumer adoption being at the sort of cutting edge. I mean, frankly, if you go to America and see how you can interact as a consumer with institutions, I think the UK is far more advanced than that, you know, in terms of financial services being a good example. And there's an apocryphal story that it was, again, EasyJet uh, allowing you to buy a ticket online that got the UK consumer to be early adopters of technology in the early 90s. So I think we have a relatively tech-friendly population. I think we have a fantastic you know, a higher education system, which gives people the opportunity to get these skills. We have a great ecosystem. I mentioned DeepMind earlier, which gives us some, you know, this massive artificial intelligence ecosystem of startups. And I think we certainly under David Cameron had a government that was very, very tech friendly. And the government digital service was really at the forefront of pushing the envelope on this. So all the building blocks are there. I think what is now lacking is, as I say, an understanding that this is not a fringe activity. Data rests with the Department of Digital, Culture, Media and Sport, which I have no problem with. It's now a pretty sizable department. But in political terms, it's still a relative minnow. It's not the Department of Business. And I don't think that necessarily we have a team at the centre of government that is really, really driving this forward. And I think we did under Cameron, under the government digital service with people like Mike Bracken. You had people who are prepared, like a company like Camtar, prepared to take risks, prepared to be innovative, prepared to constantly be thinking ahead about what the next product could be that would be useful to people and was constantly putting the user first and thinking what would benefit the user. So I think we are still in a very good place, but I think we risk losing momentum unless we have leadership at the top. Now, having said that, Rishi Sunak, our new prime minister, is, you know, Mr. Techie and Mr. Spreadsheet. So if anyone understands this, it will be the prime minister. So let's let's talk about innovation and how that's encouraged, because obviously brands and organisations play, as you say, a massive role in driving adoption of new technologies um, and new concepts. One of the things we've done recently is a piece of research, and it shows that Nearly 50% of marketers are looking at investing uh, this year, in 2023, into the metaverse in all its various forms. And, you know, they're continuing their investment in online video and streaming and podcasts and e-commerce. And, you know, so brands are actually hugely progressive. What do you think governments more broadly, not just the UK government, should be doing to support all of that innovation that's coming from brands? 
Uh, well, that's a very interesting question. I think, first of all, that I think government could learn a lot from brands. So I think there needs to be much more of a dialogue between business and government on a much more regular basis. I was always criticised as a minister for the amount of businesses that I used to meet. And obviously, people thought I was deeply corrupt and up to, up to no good. But actually, I just find it very, very stimulating. And I do think, regardless of how tacky people think this sounds, that um, you could learn much more about what is going on in the world and much more about what innovation is by talking to the chief executive of Tesco than necessarily talking to public policy officials because they are dealing every day with customers and constantly having to adapt. And again, going back to Doug uh, Amazon stroke the Natural History Museum, you know, his point about how to adapt in the public sector was that Amazon, you know, was always in beta mode, you know, it would change the font or the colour depending on how customers were interacting. So I think we can learn a huge amount from brands and business. I think there is a gap potentially in the tax system, which is that, um, you know, hardcore R&D in science and technology uh, attracts a tax break, but R&D in creativity, if I can put it that way, is not encouraged. Whereas countries like Germany and South Korea have very clear policies to support R&D, if I can put it, as it were, in the humanities. And brands uh, investing in the metaverse, I suspect, are unable to uh, access R&D tax credits in order to push forward that research. So that is something practical that the government could potentially look at helping. And let's look a bit further ahead even than 2023, because there's quite a lot of evolution, as you are well aware, in the world of broadcasting. You know, there's been uh, recent discussions about perhaps in the UK that all broadcasting might go online by around 20. 30. So obviously, is a particular interest of yours, having been a, a minister for culture, and you've seen the evolution of TV broadcasting to, you know, from analog to digital and, you know, radio moving from analog to primarily digital listening now. What would your prediction be for broadcasting over the next few years? Because it's, it's a hugely complex and fast changing market. Well, I think the changes are accelerating very quickly. And I think, uh, you know, you and I, I suspect, have barely notice the imperceptible changes to our lifestyle, but which are now fundamental, which is that I probably have not watched live television except for sport for a couple of years now. Any kind of drama or content that I want to see, I will stream and I will choose when to watch it. Sport and maybe game shows, so I'm a Celebrity or Strictly, uh, would be things that you watch live. I don't think that streaming, going back to what I said about culture in the pandemic, I don't think streaming is going to destroy our sense of community because I can happily sit down and start watching Yellowstone, which my wife and I have started doing, and I can pick up a conversation with someone who may have watched it three months ago and say, God, wasn't it amazing? It's brilliant, this, that, and the other. So I don't think you lose that sense of community. And also, you know, we're all watching the third season of Emily in Paris pretty much at the same time. So that's a good thing. I think that, uh, you know, there's a media bill due on the books soon, which is going to try and make sure that public service broadcasting remains prominent when it comes to streaming so that when you get your smart television, there's the BBC iPlayer and ITVX are prominently displayed. But by and large, we're becoming uh, bespoke consumers of content. And I don't have any problem with that. And we've seen a massive investment in content because it's a very competitive landscape. No doubt there'll be some consolidation down the way. But I think the other point I would make, though, is that um, from a public policy position and what will concern politicians is not leaving people behind. And there will be this hybrid existence for a while 
if I compare it to digital radio, for example, I was in charge of radio as a minister and I never ever got to a position where I was comfortable in switching off FM because I knew that it would cause a massive row. And I wanted, as it were, the industry to evolve to a point where FM really became surplus to requirements. And there needs to be a balance between kind of what capital investment is needed to sustain FM against the benefit of continuing it. But I knew that even though Digital radio has now, I think, easily surpassed the kind of 50% mark that people wanted and more and more car, you know, most all, all new cars now have digital radios. You can't leave behind the people who have 10 FM radios in their house and absolutely love radio. So there will always be this kind of hybrid existence. Whether you get to complete switch off to broadband television in 2030, I'm highly sceptical about because I think that the political imperative to maintain free to air, even if it's only serving. 10% of the population will still be uh, will still be there. Some of our other data shows, Ed, that um, media spend on radio for advertising purposes is actually in decline for next year, or is it's going to grow at a slower rate for next year. Podcasting, however, is growing at a, a much faster rate in terms of advertising investment. So what does the future look like for audio do you think again i think that there will be a sort of hybrid future for audio you know i do this times radio show on a friday night and um, i sometimes feel while i'm doing it i'm doing sort of 12 short podcasts you know in 15 minute segments i have a guest on we talk about a discrete issue the guest goes a new guest comes in there's no particular theme i mean we're focused on things like culture and technology but there's no particular theme throughout the program and in fact a lot of people email me and say you know could you put your schedule up on twitter because i will listen to the guests that i want to listen to and i won't listen to the others and obviously people are able to catch up on the app if they are so inclined to listen to my show in their spare time so i think that there will be a sort of merging of the sort of world of podcast and the world of radio to a certain extent but having said that of course whenever i'm driving anywhere i will turn on the radio and listen to the radio and when i get up in the morning i will listen to the radio live because i want to hear kind of what the day's headlines are and what people are talking about so there will still be a case for live radio and obviously digital radio like digital television has seen a massive explosion of choice. So uh, I think, again, exactly as I described television, there will be the live radio need, which is I want to get up in the morning and find out what's going on in the world. And I'm driving from A to B. So I just want to listen to music or people chatting. And there will be the podcast aspect of radio, which is, you know, I heard Ed Vasey had Jane Osler on his show yesterday. I'd love to hear that interview. I'll just get the app, find out where it is and listen to it. You know, Desert Island Discs on Radio 4, I won't listen to live. I'll listen on Catch Up uh, and it's effectively a podcast. It's not a radio program. You've been listening to Future Proof from Kantar and Side Business School. For all episodes and more information, visit kantar.com or oxfordfutureofmarketing.com. If you enjoyed this, please leave us a rating and a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. 